Uh, my name is Jared Ott, and uh, as Robbie mentioned uh, to you already, we've been uh, in a series called Go, the Gospel in Action. I really appreciated uh, Jenna's uh, video. Uh, what a powerful testimony, and so fitting for our passage here this morning. Uh, like we've said, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been in this series, and I know last week if you were here, Pastor Ed gave a wonderful message about giants uh, and facing those giants, and we're coming back to the series that we'd started so many uh, weeks ago. And I love this passage this morning, as Robbie already, already uh, read to us this morning, because it really shows so much the characteristics of a healthy and growing church. We'll see that the, the disciples and the leadership of the church are really striving for unity, that they understood their role, and that they also gave ministries away, and there were people were willing, like Jenna, to actually serve in those ministries. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we look through this passage is ask three basic questions of you that I think we can apply to our lives this morning. But before we do, will you pray with me? God, thanks for today. Father, thank you so much for people like Jenna in this church who are so willing to serve, who understand their gifts, want to use it in a way that glorifies and honors you, Father. Father, I pray that uh, you be with us this morning, Father, as we look at this wonderful passage. Thank you for teaching us so many great truths through your word. Father, I pray that you use uh, me this morning. Speak through me. Use my lips. I pray that they are your lips. Use my heart, Father. I pray that it is your heart, Father, and that you allow us to hear the message that you want us to hear this morning. Thank you again for this time. In your name, amen. Well, growing up, uh, I remember uh, when I was in middle school, uh, one of the things that my parents encouraged myself, as well as my older brother and sister, to do was to play an instrument. Uh, we didn't actually have a whole lot of uh, extra finances, so instead of getting to pick my instrument, I was given an instrument by my older brother, Matthew. It was a trumpet. This trumpet was passed down to me from Matthew. I think that uh, about 50 generations before Matthew, this trumpet had been passed down as well. Uh, this thing was so beat up, I think it predated the Civil War at this point. Uh, by the time I got it, it was, wasn't even like brass colored as you would think a trumpet would be. It was more of a faded yellow. Uh, it had dents all over the place. The horn at the end bent off to the left, so much so that you had to shove it down in the case and put your knee on it to clip the case closed. The valves that controlled the, the pitch, uh, for some reason, uh, one was rusted shut. The other was uh, welded shut for some reason. I'm not even sure why. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was the three main valves at the top, uh, two of them worked great. Uh, one of them stuck uh, on occasion. It got stuck. And so you had to like pull it up manually, which any trumpeter or musician or idiot would tell you that was less than convenient way to play. Jared, you missed that note. Sorry, pulling up my valve. I'll get there. It didn't really matter in middle school because our band in middle school was so horrific that any time we went to play music anyway, we sounded like a, a dying moose giving birth. So it didn't matter. I fit right in. Nonetheless, I got good at this trumpet, uh, and I continued on with it. I kind of got used to when the vow would stick, and I'd pull it up real fast to the point where in uh, high school, I was asked by a um, guide or church, Doug, to be part of a brass ensemble. This brass ensemble was going to play at Christmas, and it contained all kinds of other instruments. There were uh, five trumpets, there was trombones, there was tubas, French horns, uh, basses, everything that you can think of, all in this group, and we were going to play this uh, 15 or 20 minute Christmas melody. And I remember Doug passing out the trumpet, uh, you know, the, the sheets for the trumpet, the assignments, 
And uh, it was kind of like, you know, when you're waiting to be picked in sports, you hope you get, you know, one or two. So Doug's passing them out, and there's one, there's two. I didn't get three. I didn't get part four. I finally got part five. I was I was trumpeter number five, which I didn't even think uh, existed, but I, I was trumpeter number five. I had like seven notes in this 20-minute uh, uh, medley piece. And I remember Doug, after our first practice, came up to me and he said, you know, Jared, thanks for being trumpeter number five. That's I've been doing this for a number of years, and that's usually the most difficult one to find. I said, Doug, it's, you know, it's like seven notes. <laughs> How can that be, you know, that hard? He said, no, 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 you didn't hear me. I didn't say it was difficult to play. I said it was difficult to find. He said, I can always get people who want to play the lead roles, but for somebody who want, who could play the fifth trumpeter with enthusiasm and excitement is a problem. And if we have no fifth trumpeter, we have no harmony. And I thought, man, that's right. That was the harmony part. The trumpet wasn't good. It was less than efficient. It had some issues, some dents, some dings. But I was able to play the harmony, and we played that piece, and it was awesome. But I remember thinking after we were done playing, what if I complained? What if when Doug was passing out the, the instruments, uh, the, the assignment parts, what if I was like, oh, trumpeter five? Really, Doug? Come on. I'm better than that. I'm getting overlooked here. That's not fair. Or what if during the, during this Christmas piece at church, I just said, you know what? I would have played trumpeter number two. And I just grabbed his sheet music and started playing that. Or what if Doug, who was so talented, one of the most talented um, musicians I knew at the time, who could play any instrument, if he said, you know what, there's so much grumbling and complaining here, forget it. I'm just going to play all the parts. It wouldn't have sounded good. It would have sounded like our middle school band. But he didn't. We all played our own part. Everyone understood their role. Doug understood the necessity of giving away certain parts to other people. This church in Jerusalem, as we read already in Acts, was was facing a problem of disunity, disharmony. Because of certain people feeling slighted, feeling overlooked, complaining about certain issues going on. There were grumblings. And it was the disciples who recognized, look, look, we're on the verge of disunity here. We're going to have no harmony at all. We better, we better rethink our plan. We understand our role, but we better, we better be able to give other ministries away. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your uh, service sheets, you'll see there in verse 1 it says, in those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing. You have to look at in those days, what does that mean? What does that mean? We're not, we don't have time to go through the, the whole series of Acts, but we know that, hey, the church is really growing at this point. The last number we have is in um, chapter 4, and they said 5,000 men. That's just men. To that, you've got to add women and children. So at this point, the church of Jerusalem, could have they could have 20,000 people at this point. A lot bigger than, than our church here. A lot more needs. A lot more things going on. But as the church began to grow, what happens? The devil causes strife. The devil causes strife. And you, we see in, in chapter 4, uh, the disciples are persecuted. And then they're, then they're let loose again, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in 23, they came back together and they started preaching again. So things are going well. And then in Acts 5, if you were over in the sanctuary last week, Pastor Wade talked about Ananias and Sapphira. There's corruption in the church. They came in, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the disciples about uh, how much money they had, and they were struck dead right there. So now we have corruption. 
And then things got better again. The disciples started preaching again, but then now they're persecuted again and thrown in jail this time. In chapter 5. Angels opened up the jail cells and out they go again. They continue to preach. The last thing we have is in 42 of chapter 5 where it says, day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So it says, when it says in those days, understand this is not a new pattern. This is not a new venture for the church. Satan kept attacking. First it was persecution. Then it was, then it was corruption. Then it was, then it was persecution and jail time. Now it's disunity. Satan keeps saying, you know what? Look, if I can't pick them apart uh, outside, I'm going to pick them apart inside the church. This happens in our families all the time, doesn't it? In life. You know, maybe we had a sickness or something going on, and we finally got through it, and we think, oh, God, things are getting better now. Then all of a sudden, what happens? The bills come. It's like, oh, man, now we have financial issues. We go, oh, man. We get through that, and what happens? There's disunity in the family, maybe between a husband or wife or with kids. Satan keeps coming. He keeps coming. This is not a new pattern for the church. That's why in 1 Peter it says the devil roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have to be what? On guard. So in those days, the numbers of disciples were increasing. The Hellenistic Jews, you'll see there in verse 1, among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because of their widows being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now understand at this point, church is huge. But the disciples are still in charge of most of the ministries. We see this in verse 34 of chapter 4. There was no needy among them. From time to time, those who owned the land or houses sold it and brought the money from all the sales. They put it where? At the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. This church is huge. There's lots of ministries going on. The disciples are in charge of a lot of ministries, but now it's getting to a point people start grumbling and complaining. Understand the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews are very different. The Hellenistic Jews were very much the minority in the church. They would often travel from the distant land to Jerusalem. And they would stay there in their dying years in the holy city. But what happened is a lot of the men would die and left a lot of the widows behind. So you have cultural factors. You have language factors. They spoke Greek. The Hebraic Jews spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. So you have some big issues here. And what happens? They complain. They complain. In King James, it says they murmured. They murmured, which is like a secret debate. And then they said it was about their own widows, if you see that. Their own widows. Making us believe that they felt it was intentional. They were being overlooked. They were being slighted. It was a selfish thing. Hey, we're being overlooked here. That's why James 4 says, do you know where your fights and arguments come from? They come from selfish desires that wage war within you. So many churches nowadays have people in the church that feel so slighted, so offended by their personal opinions not being listened to that they start to murmur and complain. They don't, they don't approach the leadership in a good way. And what happens? They, they start to talk and then this, this disunity causes disbelief. And then they start meeting together by themselves, talking about how bad the leadership is or how bad things are in the church. And what happens? They start their own church. Happens all the time. In his book, New Life for Your Church, Doyle Young tells of a story of the founding of the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. True story. In the late 1800s, there were just two deacons in a small Baptist church in Mayfield, Kentucky. One Sunday, one of the deacons put up a small wooden peg in the back wall so the minister could hang up his hat. When the other deacon discovered the peg, he was outraged that he had not been consulted. 
Before long, the church took sides and eventually split, forming two separate churches. They have since changed their name, but when they started out, they were the Peg Baptist and the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. Unbelievable. See what's happening in the Jerusalem church? There's a potential for this disunity to come, come about. Satan said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, if this church keeps growing, I'm just going to pick them apart within. Cause a lot of disunity. It was R.C. Sproul who said, how desperately sad is the fact that the church is known by divisions, not unity, ignorance, not knowledge, and indecisiveness rather than maturity. How it must break God's heart to see us continue in such a poverty-stricken condition in light of what he's done, stands ready to do, has resources to accomplish, and has defined as our calling in Christ. The first characteristic of a healthy and growing church is unity. Is unity. So my question for you is, how is your attitude towards the church? When there's issues that need to be addressed and they need to be addressed, how is your attitude towards it? Are you grumbling or complaining? You know, when I was in seminary, we, we talked about this passage a lot. We studied the book of Acts when we were talking about leadership and church growth and health. And I remember reading a story of an author who talked about the church as in a boat. And he says, God has enlisted us in the Navy and placed us on a ship. It's no cruise ship. It's a battleship. We aren't called to a life of leisure. We're called to a life of service. Each one has a different task. Some concerned with those who are drowning. Others are snatching people from the water. Others are occupied with the enemy, so they man the cannons of prayer and worship. Still others devote themselves to the crew, feeding and training the crew members. Though the battle is fierce, the boat is safe, for our captain is God. The ship will not sink. For that, there is no concern. But there is concern, however, regarding the disharmony of the crew. When it comes to the issue of the weekly meeting at which the captain is thanked and his words are read, all agree on its importance, but few agree on its nature. Some want it loud, others quiet. Some want ritual, others spontaneity. Some want to celebrate so they can meditate. Others meditate so they can celebrate. There are those who think officers should wear robes. There are those who think there are, should be no officers at all. And there are those who think that we're all officers and we all should wear robes. Some want a meeting for those who have gone overboard. Others want to reach those overboard without going overboard and neglecting those on board. The consequence is a rocky boat. There's trouble on the deck. Fights have broken out. Sailors refuse to speak to each other. There have even been times one group refuses to acknowledge the presence of the others on the ship. Most tragically, some adrift at sea and have chosen not to board the boat because of the quarreling of the sailors. When you look at our own church, yeah, there's... There are some issues. But are we quarreling? Are we complaining? Because people aren't going to want to get on the boat. That's the case. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we have harmony and unity in our church? Well, we go to God. On the last night of Jesus, Jesus prays a prayer that stands at the citadel of the church, even this church. I pray for these followers, but I also pray for all those who believe in me because of their teaching. Father, I pray that they will become one. As you are in me and I am in you, I pray that you can also be in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. Striking, isn't it? The last night, Jesus' life, before he died, he has one more final prayer. What does he pray for? He doesn't pray for our happiness or our joy or our success. What does he pray for? He prays for unity. He prays for harmony. Why? Because then people will know. The world will believe that you sent me. Unity is what it's all about. 
So how do we, how do we do that? Does it mean we compromise convictions? No. Does it mean we abandon truths we cherish? No. Does it mean we don't address certain issues? Absolutely not. But we gotta do it in a right way, with the right attitude. This would have been totally different for the disciples if the people came up and said, you know what, disciples, I appreciate all you're doing. The church is getting really big. Uh, we understand there's some cultural language factors. Uh, we notice some people are getting overlooked. Uh, we'd love to help out in any way we can. Man, how different that would have been. Make every effort to the Holy Spirit to have peace. The question for you is, are you striving for unity in the church? How's your attitude? D.L. Moody says, I've never known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people are divided. We want to have unity. I'm comforted to know there's no perfect church. Uh, if you're here with us uh, today and you're church hopping and you're looking for a perfect church, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but this is not it. Uh, we do have issues, but that's okay. I think we can also learn a lot from this passage because the disciples recognized there was a, there was a potential for disunity. But they also recognized their own role and realized that they needed to give other things away. It says, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I understand that the word tables there, trapeza, can mean a table of counting money or a money changer. So it's not just food. It's also handling money. So there's other ministries going on here. But don't misconstrue the disciples' statement. They are not devaluing those ministries. It's more a matter of function not value. They understood their own role. That's why John Stott said they weren't at liberty to redirect their labors or to redefine their priorities. They understood their role. Doug, our fearless leader in the, the brass group, understood his role. Look, I'm playing the lead part. I, I, that's, my, that's my part i got to play. It doesn't mean any other role isn't important. Trumpeter five, six notes. I need you there. But I understand my own role. Preaching must never be, nothing must be, be, ever be allowed to erode the commitment to prayer and preaching. King James, it says, we, the, in that passage, says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Understand, preaching isn't any more important than other ministries, but it is important. This is how the message gets out. J.I. Packer said, preaching is the event of God bringing to the congregation a Bible based, Christ-centered, life-impacting message of instruction and direction from himself through the words of a spokesman, from himself. That's why prayer is so important, vitally important. In seminary, when we were doing a homiletics class, we were you know, doing preaching stuff, the whole first part was about prayer. It's like, well, why is there so much emphasis on prayer? Because if God's using you to preach, you've got to know what he wants you to say. So for those of you who are teaching and preaching, those of you who are leading small groups or Bible studies, are you praying? Are you praying before your message? Are you taking the time to pray? For the rest of you, maybe you're not leading groups. Maybe you're not preaching or teaching. Maybe on your comment card you'll say, hey, I want to preach next week. Um, maybe you're not. But are you praying for those that are? Are you praying that you hear the message that God wants you to hear? I once knew a pastor who was so involved in so many administrative things of the church, so many ministries that he didn't really have time for prayer and working on his sermon. So he would start every Saturday night at 10 p.m. He would work all night and go right to church that morning, preach a sermon. And I asked, how is the church doing? He said, well, you know, it's really struggling. People aren't really being fed as well as they should be. People are kind of dropping off. The spiritual life is at a low. I thought, wow, you lost your focus is why. We need to be praying. We need to be focusing on preaching. 
That's why the disciples said, we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. John Wesley said, prayer is where the action is. Are you praying? Are you praying? Charles Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Are you praying? Are you praying for the pastors and leaders of the church? We understand that they're not devaluing the service to the widows because, hey, look, they don't close down the program. They don't say, hey, look, we don't have time for that. Uh, we just got to close that down. They also don't say, you know, you know, we're just going to stop preaching and teaching at this point, and we're just going to focus only on the widows. The disciples also didn't say, you know what, just get some other people to run that ministry. It doesn't matter who they are. No. It says, brothers and sisters, choose in verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Rechorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert of Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The third characteristic of a healthy and growing church is service. Service. Because ministries have to be given away have to be given away. In Mark 10 it says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. Whoever wants to first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of God did not come to serve, but to be served and to give His life as a ransom for many. We need to be serving. We need to be a serving church. The disciples understood their role. They understood giving it away. And they said, you know what? It's important that these people not only serve, but they are full of the Holy Spirit. They're yielding to God in their lives. And they're also wise with the gifts that they have. That's what Jenna had in that video. Full of the Holy Spirit and wise. Well, that's important. That's all he asks. Some people in uh, here will say, well, Jared, you know, I'm not trained enough to serve. I don't have enough education to serve. Or I, I, you know, I'm just, I have too many issues in my life. I have too many dings and dents in my life. I don't look very good. I'm not able to serve and do my part. And they'll use all kinds of excuses. And they'll look at people in the Bible and say, you know what, those guys are just, I'm just not like them. But consider this. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Timothy may have had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos's only training was in the school of fig tree pruning. Jacob was a liar. Solomon was very rich. Jesus was very poor. Abraham was old. David was young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon doubted. So did Thomas. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burnt out. John the Baptist was accused of being a loudmouth. Martha was a worrywart. Mary seemed lazy. Samson had long hair. Noah got drunk. Did I mention Moses had a short fuse? So did Peter and Paul. Lots of folks did. You look at these guys and say, you know what? They had issues. They weren't perfect. They weren't the perfect trumpet, but God really used them. Because that's what they were made to do. What were they? They were full of the Holy Spirit and wise with their gift. God doesn't require a job interview to serve. He also doesn't fire and hire like most bosses do. All he wants is you to be full of the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? This is why I'm made. This is why I'm here. i got to serve with the best gifts I can give. That's what Jenna did. She understood her role. She understood her gifts. As the band comes up to play, 
the question I have for you is this morning is, are you serving? Are you serving? And if not, why? There are so many ministries here at the church that could use service. There's children's ministries and kids' ministries, day camp. There's technical ministries. There's music ministries. There's AV. There's all kinds of ministries, student ministries, all kinds of ministries here at the church. The question for you this morning is, are you serving? Are you serving? The church in Jerusalem understood the importance of a church that was unified, committed to prayer and preaching. And as a result, as a result, they grew. That's why we see in chapter 7, so the word of God spread. The numbers of Jerusalem, numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This unity, this commitment to prayer and teaching and this commitment to service grew the church exponentially. In closing, for the health and growth of a church to have to take place, people have to be willing to serve. So the question I'm leaving you with is, are you willing to serve? J.K. Langley, a Christian, said, a Christian's unwillingness to serve may soon destroy his capacity for usefulness. Langley goes on to say that the great violinist, Niccolo Paganini, willed his marvelous violin to the city of Genoa on condition that it must never be played. The wood of such an instrument, while used and handled, wears only slightly, but set aside begins to decay. Paganini's lovely violin has today become a worm-eaten and useless except as a relic. Reminds me of my own trumpet. You know, I never passed that trumpet down to anybody else. Because I didn't think it was good enough. I actually gave it to a friend of mine who uh, is, a, is a pastor in Arizona. And he, he collected antique instruments for a number of years. And he made a little stand for it and put it up on a shelf. And there's a light on it. And it's cool. People come in and ooh and ah over these instruments and look at the, look at the trumpet that Looks like it's been through the war. But it's really not serving any purpose. It's just collecting dust at this point. And I bet the maker of the trumpet would say, you know what, that's not really why it was made. But I bet if you pulled that trumpet off the shelf and played, it would play that perfect harmony that you needed every single time. The question I have for you this morning, church, is not only are you unified, not only are we focusing on prayer and teaching, but are you serving? Or are you just sitting around collecting dust? Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Father, thank you so much for what you teach us in your word, Father. Thank you for the fact that we're not perfect. The people in the Bible weren't perfect, Father, but you use them in mighty ways, Father. I pray that you use us in mighty ways too, Father. Help us to have that passion to serve, to get involved here at the church, to use our gifts, Father, for how you made us to be. Thanks for today. In your name, amen.